This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest that I think you're really going to enjoy. So obviously on the show, we tend to stick mostly to American politics for, I think, what are pretty obvious reasons. However, it is sometimes very useful to look at what's happening in other nations, especially when they can provide us a case study for a phenomenon that is also occurring in our own country here in the United States. Now, recently, Australia had a referendum on whether or not they should have official recognition of their indigenous population as part of their government. And they ended up rejecting that. And what, what was a pretty surprising vote, I think, for a lot of people outside of Australian politics wouldn't have expected it to go that way, especially as Australia seems to have been drifting pretty, pretty hard leftward, uh, especially throughout the COVID years. So a, a surprising rejection for many of that kind of referendum. But what is very interesting is while the voters rejected that referendum, the media and the government and the corporations in Australia have kind of openly already begun to talk about how they're planning to subvert the will of the voters. And that is something that, of course, we as Americans, those in uh, Britain and other countries have seen on a pretty regular basis. So I thought it would be very, very useful to look at this. And joining me is an Australian native, Furious Pertinax. Thanks for coming on, man. Uh, pleasure as always. Thanks. Aaron. I, I know this is quite last minute and uh, I apologize for my uh, second rate little setup here, but thank you for being tolerant of, of that and uh, pleasure to be on your show once again. So hello to you and hello to all your, your wonderful guests. No, absolutely. I'm, like I said, very glad to have because I was just going to look at this. But of course, it's always much more valuable to have somebody who is you know in the thick of things, who is familiar with what's going on uh, and can give us some background. So I'm very glad that you were able to kind of join me at the last second there. So just to set the stage for a lot of people in the United States, of course, we have a long history, a storied history, uh, kind of with the native inhabitants of uh, the Americas uh, there, you know, this kind of obsessed our media the cowboy versus indian is kind of a classic archetype for our entertainment our media those kind of things however for americans this question is more or less settled like if you go to really uh you know left-wing areas they might do like a land acknowledgement of you know a certain tribe used to own this land that kind of thing and there are of course still a you know interactions with the united states government and the uh, Indian population. I'm going to call Indians Indians because they usually don't like Native American. That's that's actually not the preferred uh, uh, nomenclature for most people who are uh, who are of those tribes. However, if for the most part, Americans don't really think a lot about uh, you know kind of their indigenous population. It's kind of brought up of oh all the terrible things that happened or you know the colonization probably or something like that. You know they're they're taught to feel really bad about it in school. But the day-to-day -day interactions with kind of the current descendants of those native populations just isn't really a big part of, I think, the American consciousness in the way that it seems to be for many people in places like Canada and Australia. So can you give, for people who are unfamiliar with the background, kind of the lay of the land for the relationship between uh, kind of the, the indigenous population and Australia as it is today? Well... I'll do my best to sort of provide something of a TLDR, shall I say. Um, yeah, it's a big I topic, I know, yeah. <laughs> I think in comparison to the to the American subject, and again, I, I would confess a degree of ignorance to the the American equivalent with your Native Americans, so I, I do apologise if I get some things mistaken. But I think comparatively, there's there was probably less genuine animosity between Australian Aboriginals and the British sort of, um, you know, colonist settler populations, insofar that amongst the Australian Aboriginals, there was never, um, you know, like, there wasn't ever sort of a great conflict between these these two very different peoples. I mean, in, there were sort of skirmishes and it was, you know, 
uh, rifles and javelins and and whatever at one another like skirmishes you know in places such as you know victoria or frontier new south wales or the early um early days of sort of settler western australia around the swan swan river colony um but it was it was not into the same scale or intensity of say you know if you look of say like in Tukunso and his role say with the um the uh you know the wars with the, the british in 1812 and the westward expansion of the americas and then sort of obviously more faintly you know, or as famously you know the whole um you know wounded knee sort of situation we we never we we never had that kind of i hate to use the word but savagery and it and it and sort of it wasn't over such a uh um even a wide sort of territorial expanse and like sort of chatting that pre-show you had these very distinct American Indian groups, for example, you had, you know, the Cherokee and the Sioux and the, um, you know, the Apache Indians that, you know, very doggedly resisted in, in particular circumstances, the expansion of the American nation westwards was that just wasn't quite so here. And as a consequence, I, I think once um, the Australian, the, the, the colonies all, um, mutually agreed to federation in 1901, even though Aboriginals would not be given the vote until uh, or, or full enfranchisement until the, the mid 60s. Um, there was sort of always, well, not always, but certainly probably from the World War periods and onwards, there was this idea whereby, yes, Aboriginals are a part of Australia writ large, but because there was such a obvious you know, existential chasm between european society and european development and what the europeans encountered when they came here with the aboriginals which is again probably even more of a gulf than what the native american indians had with the with the american or the british descended pioneers in the americas um there was almost this sentiment of well we actually have to help these people there is actually such a large chasm between us and them that we sort of have this role of custodianship of them. And there's a very, very famous interview. Um, sorry, if I had, if, if, if I knew this trip was happening a couple of days ago, I would have actually sent you the link. I apologize, Oren, but I do endeavor, I do encourage people to look at this. There's a wonderful um, uh, a YouTube clip and it's from ABC as in the, the Australian equivalent of BBC, the Australian Broadcasting uh, Corporation, whereby they actually ask and they interview very waspish, waspish Australians from the city, you know, what their attitudes were, what their their mindset regarding the question was. It's like, yes, we actually need to help Aboriginals. We need to help provide sustenance. We have to, you know, build them schools and build them houses. So it was a very sort of, you might say, paternalistic mentality, which leftists would obviously frown upon today. But I guess the point I'm trying to make was is that once Australia was federated and essentially once the Aboriginals were sort of incorporated into Australian society, there wasn't a deep animus between those two culture groups, if you get what I mean. I'm mm -hmm. sorry if I've articulated that poorly, but... No, no. So, uh, is, so when it comes to kind of the the proposition itself, you were, you were explaining to mm -hmm. this to me in more detail. So, obviously, there's a referendum proce process. You can do uh, direct votes uh, from the people, kind of direct democracy. Uh, and yep. what was on the table here seemed to be a... a an ad what was being presented as an advisory body uh that uh, that the indigenous population would be able to have however you said that the reason that there was so much pushback against this is that it was very poorly defined and it seemed to to many like it would quickly get out of hand there was there was no uh understanding what the limits of its power would be and it might end up with all kinds of different powers that were very poorly laid out in the referendum mm. well th that's right because I, I think I think this analysis has some truth to it. You know, we were talking pre-show about how there's this kind of like, and and you often talk about it, um, you know, in, in videos associated with the subject because it's so true. There's sort of like the 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 pre-civil rights American Constitution, the post-civil rights Constitution, like the sort of MLKs, is sort of hinge point between those two things. And in some regards, yes, this is kind of a bit of an Australian MLK moment in a sense, in that it can open the door to a complete reinterpretation of constitutional law. But this particular referendum was like, as you just said now, was more a case of attaching what was described as an advisory body 
to our political system, but one that was intentionally ill ill-defined, very vague, extremely ambiguous as to its purpose and its function. And more um, sort of more disconcertingly, what was the well, in the end, I don't know if you've seen the news articles about this, and I mean, perhaps we can bring it up before the show ends, but there are a number of states who have basically said the referendum be damned. Um, we're going to do a state-based equivalent of this in terms of you know the, the very states of Australia rather than as a, as a federal institution. Um, mm. And actually, this is already present in South Australia, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, as well. And so there's already that sort of overriding of the will of the people anyway. And, and the second part of this, and again, we talked about this pretty sure, was that once the, the, the point of doing it by referendum was that it was basically would etch it in and entrench it. And the only way it could ever be unpicked, which it probably would never be unpicked anyway, but the only two methods of doing it would be to have a supermajority in both houses, the upper and lower house, uh, much like you guys, we have a, like a house of representatives and a, a Senate. Um, and, or it would have to be another referendum. And in most countries in the modern world, most things that ever get passed by referendum, which are difficult anyway, ever rarely, if never, then get rescinded by referendum as well. There's a degree of permanency that exists in referenda that often don't tend to exist in other realms of politics. So there's that factor to consider. But then I suppose to the actual tenor of this discussion today, and you know, I remember you first pointing this out, was that because of this sort of role that modern day um, sort of corporates play in this sort of intersection between corporations and academia and journalism and news media, et cetera, again, the will of the people be damned, it will sort of be done by any and all other means anyway, irrespective of the, of the outcome. So there's that to consider. Absolutely. Well, I want to go ahead and like you said, I've got two kind of news stories here and I, I want to look at them because they'll frame the discussion we're having because uh, I want to hit on both parts, like you're saying, the referendum itself. And then the way that basically the government and these corporations and media are colluding to basically subvert the referendum vote. So we're going to hit both of those topics. But let's let's yeah, start splendid. with this one. Now, now, now both of these uh, articles are from Reuters. I want people to remember that um, most of the news that they see is not the it's all it's it's mostly centralized by a few organizations you have a few wire organizations you have places like reuters you have places like the ap and most news organizations do not have individual reporters in different places they don't have the resources you know there, there used to be an understanding that like all of these newspapers and all of these tv networks and all of these different places needed to have their own war correspondents and foreign correspondents and they needed to have offices around the world so that that would allow them to, you know, to source their own news and, and to bring break stories that are unique and those kind of things. Like that was part of the journalism business was was having that ability to kind of send a force out that would bring, you know, eyewitness news to your readers. That was that was a big selling point of those organizations. But so almost nobody. On, yes. Just to say as well, each of these organizations um, also expected to have their own internal checks and balances as well. Like once mm -hmm. upon a time, that was a part of journalistic integrity, which obviously yes. doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, no, they used to have You're right. They had the walls of separation between opinion and, and you know, news editorial and, you know, all these things like there were there were checks on all of these different things. These were all supposed to be safeguards against kind of what we see now. But today, there's only a handful of organizations that actually have any kind of correspondence, any kind of foreign bureaus. And for the most part, you've really just got a couple different organizations that write the news for everybody. Your local newspaper, all the way up to major news outlets that you think would have their own correspondence or bureaus. They don't have those and they rely almost entirely on blurbs and, and, and pieces written from these handful of news networks. So once someone's like like Reuters or AP or somebody writes a very biased article, 
the opinions of that are going to be you know, just uh, echoed through all these different places because none of these organizations have their own uh, ability to like go to those places, have a bureau, have a war correspondent, have somebody to actually get real reporting done. They're just going to take the information from the newswire or from the services or one of the major papers, and they're just going to recut it. And they're just going to kind of add their own words in, add their own spin in, and then send it back out with new ads. That's, that's kind of the business model for most media outlets today. So when we see a piece as biased as this one in Reuters, remember, it's not just going to be Reuters that's going to be biased. It, that their, their language, their framing, their understanding is going to set the tone for literally thousands of other news outlets from what we read right here. So let's jump into this real quick. And Furious, you just jump in, um, you know, kind of as we go when you see something you want to talk about. But the, the headline here is Australia reject, rejects indigenous referendum and a setback for reconciliation. So from the from the headline here, we can already see incredible bias, right? In, they don't even get through the headline without saying, oh, people voted the wrong way. And this is obviously bad. So because they use the, the phrase setback. But let's talk about the phrase reconciliation real quick, because in America, we're seeing this racial reckoning or reconciliation language used a lot. And whenever they use this, they use this in uh, you know connection to something like BLM. And when they say reconciliation, what they really mean is racial animus and punishment. We need to take from one race that we see as the oppressor. We need to punish them. They need to be held down. We need to take their money. We need to put them on a lower uh, you know socio uh, social status. Uh, they need to be less able to get jobs, less able to go to college. We need to focus on reducing and holding down one group. And then giving those things to another group that happens to politically benefit the left. That's what they mean by reconciliation. But when they're using it in this terminology, what, what's the context for the Australian use of reconciliation? Well, again, as we sort of chatted just before we, we, we went live, um, as I was saying to you, this has been, and for anyone who was a, went to primary school or, you know, school sort of by and large from the late 80s onwards and certainly through the 90s there was a major push even in educational institutions back then to engage in things such as you know reconciliation uh, day uh, nadoc week which was kind of like this sort of national australian indigenous sort of cultural understanding kind of you know idea you know that that was sort of conceived of back then um and then of course even our our television channels and our radio channels, like they, they have as a result of public largesse have been given essentially entire platforms and um, infrastructures to, to perform, you know, like they're, they're to, to tell their own news, to perform their own, you know, arts and, and shows and to spread their own message on the back of other people's, you know, blood, sweat and tears, you know, in the end, that's ultimately what public expenditure, expenditure is when it comes from tax because, uh, for instance, our um, ABC, like the British BBC, is entirely a public institution. Um, and as we know, all these institutions are completely um, overpopulated, overrun by the left in every possible, you know, imaginary way. And um, and the other thing is, I just want to touch on the, on the title uh, as well, is that what's interesting about this, and perhaps your audience wouldn't be aware of this, but two of the, and this dynamic itself is kind of problematic in a way, but... I just want to make the point that two of the leading voices for the no, for the rejection of the referendum for the no case were um, uh, an Aboriginal politician by the name of uh, Warren Mundine, who I actually have, um, you know, I, I sort of know of, and he's actually quite a, a very good man and a very well-educated man at that, um, quite erudite. And he, um, he was at the absolute forefront of, of that. And there's a, a young sort of relatively, um, well, say relatively young, uh, young uh, Aboriginal politician by the name of just uh, Price. Uh, she's got an Indigenous name. But I, I don't want to mispronounce it. Um, and she's from the Northern Territory, and um, you know she's lived with a lot of this uh, systemic abuse and 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 um, you know these a lot of these cultural problems that exist in the Aboriginal sphere. And I mean, I know on other on other channels and other shows we've spoken about, like you know the young Aboriginal kids and the the, the petrol sniffing or the, um, the the massively high rates of um, of sexual abuse of both adult and minor girls. It's, it's quite a horrendous situation that occurs in a lot of these 
rural um, towns and a lot of these Aboriginal missions. Uh, it's very is very much systemic, and uh, and she comes out of that environment and she has become a politician sort of as a consequence of that, and so her and 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 uh, Jacinta and Warren became two leading voices of the No case, and uh, and the leftist media absolutely tore them to pieces in so far that oh sorry for my crudeness of the way I frame this, but oh, they're basically race traders. Like they're, 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 they're like, I suppose the, what you call in, in America, the uncle Tom syndrome of, mm. um, you know, like they don't know what's actually good for them. Like they're actually sort of serving white supremacy because they don't want to be empowered by, you know, this, this wonderful, um, you know, political idea that we've come up, come up with. And, and the title itself of this article really reeks of, well, he didn't give us what, what we wanted. So it makes you terrible people and you've set it back because you not have given us what we've wanted. And when I say we, I don't even mean the Aboriginals as a, as a monolith. I mean the activist left who have created a political constituency of this issue because, as we know, how the left had been successful in um, in politics, in in electoral politics, in, in you know this side of the Second World War, is by engaging in like the permanent intellectual rainbow coalition, mm-hmm. um, of which in Australia the Aboriginals are an important factor in that. Um, and uh, and yeah, I, I think I think uh, it's quite telling how they have been so um, wounded by this outcome. Um, so I mean, certainly as as we've touched on, they'll by both political and cultural and media means, they will circumvent this referendum one way or another. But the result of the referendum itself has definitely bruised their ego. Yeah, and it really it really echoes the same outrage that we see again from elites in places like America and the UK. Because after the you know the initial Brexit vote, uh, you know the the response from the media and the elites were, how could you possibly? do this how could the people of britain fail basically the elites right like it's it's the it's you know to to echo christopher Lash. listen listen Bruce, what are you doing right yeah we we've told you guys like we did the propaganda thing you know how you're supposed to vote how could you do this and it's the same again backlash it's the same furious backlash that we saw against trump voters right because a guy like trump isn't so like hillary clinton was getting a coronation like obviously Trump could never win. This is insane. How could you ever let somebody like this come through? And the United States government has now gotten to the point where they're literally just locking people up for supporting Trump. Like, mm-hmm. did, you, did you make a meme? Did you, you know, did, were were you standing around outside a building during a protest? Well, you're going to jail because you know. We, sorry, we, sorry, Ricky Vaughn, but your your gallery was a bit too spicy for for Congress's liking. Exactly. And and so so that's where we are in the United States, land of the free, home of the brave, where we have active political prisoners. We throw people in jail for disagreeing with Democrats. That 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 is the reality of the United States right now. People can mm-hmm. and him mm-hmm. and haw about the Constitution all they want. But, you know, go ahead and tell Douglas Mackey about it. He didn't get to see his child born because nobody seems to care about the First Amendment anymore. Uh, you know, and so th- so this is a this is again echoes that theme. It's a it's of course a specific Australian issue, but the reason I wanted to to bring you in and and bring this issue in is that it so obviously echoes this sentiment of kind of elite revulsion to what they used to pretend was the legitimating mechanism of their rule, right? Like we're we are uh, the voice of the people. We have popular sovereignty. This is this is what the people want. How could you possibly? work against the people the only reason they ever clung to that idea is they thought they had monolithic control of the media they had monolithic control of the narrative they had complete control cultural control and so they could always deliver the type of vote they wanted and now that the people are saying something different they're incredibly angry and moreover they believe those methods were bulletproof and Mm -hmm. even though there has been minor fractures in that you know for instance i think we can say with the degree of confidence that the Brexit outcome is proof of that, the Trump election has been proof of that, this referendum in Australia has been proof of that. I mean, they're not they're not major wins, you know, because in the end they've been hamstrung by every conceivable what by every conceivable way, but they are um, a demonstration that this isn't as false uh, faultless as the powers that they would like it to be. They often do believe it's it's without fault. Their little apparatus will work without interruption and sometimes it doesn't pan out that way this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real pos 
you need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So right here at the top, I'll just go ahead and read this part right here. Uh, Australia had to vote yes, no on the referendum, the first in almost a quarter of a century on the question of whether to alter the Constitution. So like you said, this isn't just some random law being passed. This, this, is, this is etched into the Constitution. There's an alteration of the Constitution to recognize the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people through the creation of indigenous advisory body, the voice to Parliament. Now, again, when they say recognize these people, you the 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 indigenous population already has the right to vote it already has the right to elect members there are already members in the parliament in fact you told me there's actually a disproportionate number of indigenous Correct, yeah. uh, uh representation in the parliament so mm. this language is very particular because they already know all this they already know that the franchise is available to these people they have equal rights uh they're actually overrepresented demographically inside uh, the the current elected body, yeah. and so when they say be recognized and have representation, they're really completely playing on the heartstrings. They're they're trying to twist the way people would understand the situation. It casts it as if this is some group of people who have been you know thrown aside and they have no ability to to have a voice in the politics, that kind of thing. But instead, know that these are people who are already fully integrated in the political system, already have representation, are already overrepresented. Instead, this is a body that is brought from the outside. It's etched into the Constitution. It's not just a law. And it could fundamentally change the operation of the government. Mm -hmm. Indeed. And just uh, two quick points. One, it's quite, it's quite of like, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a lurch at the same time as it is kind of like a, an imposition. And, you know, if it had succeeded, like, like I mentioned before, it was, it'd be a thing that would be almost impossible to dislodge. Uh, and the second thing is too, because you know, I suppose in the context of of you know yourself being American and much you've always been American, there's obviously the, the the question of sort of civil rights, and you sort of have like a pre and a post civil rights constitution. Is that you know once Aboriginals got the franchise in in the in the early mid sixties, um, there has been no legal impediment to their possibilities, shall I say, of becoming participants in the political uh, apparatus in the in the political sphere uh indeed there have been many successful aboriginal journalists um for uh, for instance the 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 person who um created the legal precedent for what we call native title in in australia was um a lawyer by, by the name of eddie marbo and the marbo decision created the precedent in australian law common law of um, the ability of certain Aboriginal tribes to claim what we call native title over areas which they consider to be tribe, uh, tribe sort of tribalistically relevant to their respective sort of in-group. Um, and, and also to, you know, a bit like what you guys experienced with the Native Americans there is that there's also this very, very generous um, wealth apparatus that sustains them. And that would not be true for a disadvantaged group or, or rather a group that is um, oppressed, if you get what I mean. In fact, mm. it's actually the reverse when the the support for these uh, for these minority groups is actually wildly inverse as to how any other minority group is treated in the country. But the narrative completely betrays that fact. Yeah. And of course, we, we mirror that in, in the United States as well. We live literally have a regime of laws built into the Civil Rights Act and in court decisions that enshrine uh, you know, bias in favor of minorities that are supposed to be oppressed. Uh, we go out of our way in you know, both in private and public uh, institutions to advantage uh, particular groups. And then we continue to pretend uh, that, you know, that, that, that there's just this uh, amazing amount of systemic bias against uh, these groups. Um, interestingly, uh, it says here that, of course, the, the nationwide vote, uh, or sorry, that the nationwide vote was 60% yes and 40% no. I guess you need four of the six states of Australia to affirm, uh, you know, the, this, uh, referendum. And it looks like it lost in pretty much every state. So it's not like they lost this by a little bit. This isn't a squeaker, uh, where you say, well, it's not a clear mandate. Maybe we do this again, or maybe the, these corporations or these states might be justified in kind of 
you know, circumventing this because it didn't really reflect, uh, you know, a clear decision. No, this was pretty overwhelmingly a, a vast, ga- you know, this, this is a runaway election in pretty much any political context. And not only was it a runaway percentage wise nationwide, it was basically a clean sweep for the no vote on the, uh, you know, uh, on the individual state level. So this is just a devastating loss in every area. And really interestingly, they also mm-hmm. point out in this, uh, in this uh, article that the uh, the no vote had the vast uh, uh, the vast amount of wealth behind it. It had the vast amount of political support, corporations. Uh, you, you know, the 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 yes vote was was highly funded. The no vote was was uh, basically a cultural uh, you know it was basically culturally toxic in a lot of ways. And yet, just like Brexit, even though they had all the funding, it had all the push behind it. Uh, you know, the, the wrong side won, and this is what has everyone very angry. Uh, absolutely it's almost been a case of um sort of you know too many too many cooks uh you know uh too small a kitchen kitchen you know what i mean like it's uh too many cooks to spoil the broth so to speak to use the analogy and um and also as well i think when you get this inverted pyramid right of all the intelligentsia all the journalists the vast majority of the political elite corporations ceos athletes everybody genuflecting and virtue signaling for this cause causes a revolt to some degree of the little people who just at, you know, at some points in time, um, you know, whether it's Britain, America, Australia, get just too fatigued of being the, the, of being, of having the finger wagged in their face and being, essentially treated like a scolded child in a primary school, because this is the attitude that these elites have with, with uh, these topics and, and with dealing with the rubes, you know, to use an American term. Um, and, and I think the outcome of, of this in Australia was very demonstrative of that dynamic, which, um, you know, and we all know what it's like, you know, they always paint the, the anti-progress people as being the, the bigots and the, the, the xenophobes and the, you know the this and that the, that and the other when people actually do have extremely lucid and well-reasoned views for not going along with it but of course they'll never be sort of you know outside of our circles they never really express as they should be yeah and it's very interesting like you said that this is this is a a problem that almost the global elite is having simultaneously particularly in the west is they just they really bought into this end of history narrative. They really bought into the idea. And I see Calhoun already uh, already ahead of us here. But I'll go. So I'll go ahead and give him a tip of the hat there. But that guided popular sovereignty. Right. We've got everything locked down. We control the media. We control academia. We control the corporations. We control the government bureaucracy, as you know, many people in, in kind of the, the uh, neo-reactionary sphere would call it. The cathedral is behind us. We control all these levers of power that manipulate, that, con- that generate soft power, that, that are able to manufacture consensus and so because we have this complete narrative control we can get really lazy we can get really sloppy we can we can we don't need to give this back and forth anymore we don't need to uh, present both sides but with a little bit of our bent we can just go full in on propaganda we can just assume our victories we can put everything in this basket we can get really heavy-handed with the moral uh you know uh j- just uh high-handedness and then when things go wrong they have this absolute freak out. They have this, this complete spurg out over like, how could you possibly, you know, not vote our way? How could you ignorant, you know, masses, uh, how, how could you not follow our direction? You, we, we know what to do. We pull the strings, you guys dance. That's, that's the relationship. And so uh, it's just interesting that all of these different Western governments seem to like simultaneously hit kind of this, this period where they overstep their bounds and they get this kind of populist backlash in a very public and embarrassing way. Yeah, I think that's, that's quite true. And I think there's sort of three prongs to this. And one is, I dare say there was, and this sort of, I think, plays into the Fukuyama mindset of you know, the, the so-called end of history, is that I think progressivism, you might say since... Oh, the 2010s, I think, um, I think once, for instance, you know, the idea of, say, like the LGBT agenda being largely accepted, you know, for them was a, a, a several decade project that eventually came to fruition, you know, really being carried over the line by the millennials. And I think, um, you know, with the election of, say, Obama 
and the idea of you know like the first non-white president of America. I think there was a few of these, um, you might say, f- sort of flashpoints in Western history, so to speak, where the left actually became greedy, where the previous generation spent several decades building towards a crescendo of success. You know, you got to think like even civil rights, you know, didn't happen in an instant. That took you know a, a fair amount of time for them to sort of execute it properly. I think ever since the successes of the 2010s have played out, um, they've lost their patience. Mm-hmm. And I think they've just assumed every victory will fall in their lap, which which I don't think, um, you know, it, it, politics just doesn't work that way. I don't think and human nature doesn't work that way. These things aren't instantaneous because, you know, progress by definition. Um, to use a, 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 an analogy which was uttered by um, a former uh, Labor Party Prime Minister of Australia, Bob Hawke. Uh, he used the, 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 the term, the inevitability of gradualness. Now, the inevitability of gradualness does not in any way uh, suggest, you know, rapid success or, or, um, or you know, uh, the, these things happening, um, you know, one thing after another, after another quick succession, they take time. And, uh, and another thing is uh, also... Um, uh, what was there's another point I wanted to make. Um, that's okay. I've actually, 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 this article because this is really the meat of what i wanted to cover in the stream so we know that they are turning against the population we know that the population did the wrong thing they made the wrong vote we can give all the lip service to the the sacredness of democracy or whatever but at the end of the day these people have no respect for that the only the only when they say democracy what they mean is the public opinion we manufacture Uh, The only thing that's sacred is the public opinion that we manufacture, and you can either conform to that or you can deny it. So uh, now that it's been denied, uh, they are going to find another way to do this. And this is kind of where the name of the stream comes from. They're just going to privatize popular sovereignty. So, yeah, I mean, you guys voted and yes, you went through a democratic process, but you chose the wrong thing. Now, in some cases, like they did in the UK, we'll just go ahead and keep, uh, you know, voting again and again and again, right? You'll just keep voting over and over again until uh, you get it right. You're going to be punished. It's going to be punitive. Uh, however, in the United States, they went another direction where obviously they went ahead and uh, subverted the Trump presidency. They lied. You know, they had this Russian collusion narrative. Uh, the deep state got involved. They cut him off at every turn. They made sure that you know, even the military didn't follow his orders in certain areas. And so there's the subversion of the presidency through this ability to, to have this conspiracy between corporations and, you know, bureaucracy and media and these kind of things. And it looks like we're going to see a similar thing here in Australia. Now, Furious is back and he had already told us that this isn't just happening in corporations. You said this has already been declared also by these different state governments who say, oh, sure, you may have voted in a national referendum, but we're just going to ignore the spirit of that and we're going to deploy these uh, different changes inside each one of these states. Yeah, indeed. Um, sorry, I just uh, I was got told by the concierge I put me in my in, in the wrong room, so that's why they're trying to knock on my door. Ah. Um, anyway, I'll, uh, I'll I'll deal with that after the stream. Um, if I could just circle back, because I did have a brain freeze on my sure sure being, um, harangued. Um, wh- what I actually thought of was that you know we often speak in our circles of the idea of um, you know, bilinism, and I definitely think there's an aspect to this right that as progressivism continues, right. And the talents of those who are the spear tip of progressivism become, shall I say, less able, less talented. You know, we may dislike these people, but, you know, people of, of the ilk of Adorno and Marcuse were sort of actually quite intelligent in, if, in their own way, if deranged. You know, someone oh, yeah. like, um, you know, I, I despise um, Gore Vidal, but, but Gore Vidal had a, an intellectual vigor that, 99.9% of the Democrat Party or the Labour Party could dream of having in their, you know, you know, in their entire party. And as the older revolutionaries have died off, the next crop are rather less talented, rather less able and erudite and able to prosecute these arguments in the same way that their predecessors did. So I think there's that aspect 
that plays into this as well. I, I wanted to try and match that with the greed thing because I think those two things come hand in hand. The yeah. complacency has happened at the same time as the as the dilapidation of talent and the dilapidation of intellectual vigor, right? And I think also too, there's an inverse thing where people, not necessarily people like us, but you might say people that we know who kind of just want to just get on with life and grill and they're not being left alone to grill. They're being harangued through every perceivable vector of existence is berating them and beating them to a pulp. And these backlashes happen as a result of that. Um, but but sorry to sort of march no 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 that's uh just to just to uh uh, because i think you're right about that so these people you're you're absolutely right to point out there's this machine right that was manufactured by a far more capable generation uh you know there's this system of mind control more you know not to be too dramatic about it but that's essentially what it is you have a propaganda machine you have a, a captured bureaucracy you have an academic network that allows you to basically con- consistently manufacture consent and, and move the population and reliably produce the kind of outcomes you're looking for. But if you're smart, you understand that like there's a there's a there's a back and forth pendulum that needs to at least seem like it exists for people to believe in the democratic process, to believe in popular sovereignty. And so you know that you can't relentlessly push all the time, which is why I've you know explained multiple times that it was a ratchet, right? Like the, you're constantly advancing in the direction of the left. You might take a break, you might stop, but you never go entirely back to the right. It's always one direction, but they knew not to twist it too far to the left too quickly. They knew to give those periods of rest, you know, you know the, the Reagan administration, those kind of things where they could lock in gains, uh, but they, you know, they would not as advance as far radically as they might have under other presidents or other administrations. So this is a, dan- a dynamic that the more talented versions of these liberal elites understood. But like you're saying, there's been a breakdown in quality. There's been a breakdown in impulse control. They've been selecting for, you know, political loyalty or for race or for other things and not for competency. And that's degraded the type of elites. And they are no mm. longer capable of exercising the, the type of control you were talking about, about and therefore we end up in these situations where they get really sloppy they get really messy they have no uh they have no patience uh for kind of what happens and that ends up continuously putting us in this situation where they where if they had just waited if they had just slowed down it would have been fine but they're so obsessed with more and more social engineering that their their goals are more and more radical they want to push their power further and further each time that there's just no ability for them to slow down anymore. And they're breaking the machine in the process. Correct. And, um, and just a, a small sort of addendum to that point as well is that I think, I think the, the, the fear that the left have of when I say like the, the right, I'm talking like in a sort of perennial traditionalistic sense is that these orders can exist for a long time and they can they they are um durable to forces of of atrophy at least to a point and they are resistant to to fractures to a point um whereas i think when you look at the leftist worldview the 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 presuppositions that sort of a derivative of the ideals of the french revolution right you think about the 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 very watchwords of the french revolutions you know egalité liberty fraternity you know it's, it's liberty brotherhood um you know and and egalitarianism um those principles basically disallow hierarchy <laughs> and if you have them have hierarchy you can't have objective standards if you don't have objective st- standards you can't cultivate future talent and I think that is also a small part of this problem they have is that, you, you, like you said, they're sort of bringing these people in based upon party loyalty or upon the fierceness of the zealotry, not because they're talented at it. And I think you have this um, this this fundamental problem within the left is can they advance the progress fast enough before the machine collapses in their hands, which I think makes for a very interesting dynamic to observe, frankly speaking. Absolutely. Let's go ahead and read just a little bit of this article so we can get a, an idea of the framing that the media is using when they talk about how corporations are going to subvert the will of the voters and why that's a good thing. Uh, we, we, yeah, just before you start, Oren, can sure. I just offer a small anecdote on this point? Mm-hmm. Um, now, it, 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 it doesn't actually involve the Indigenous vote, actually. It, it, it refers to a previous uh, thing here, and that's when we had the, um, the 
we basically had a plebiscite for, you know, the LGBT marriage, you know, the, the changing of the marriage act here. Now I have several friends of mine by virtue of being both a country boy and, um, you know, and having gone to, to the school in the city, I have a lot of my friends who work in, in technical fields, you know, they're, they're, they're mechanics and boilermakers and, you know, they're, they're you know, industry type blokes, right? And a number of them, most of them married, some not, who via, or sort of not as a part of their union, but amongst themselves, almost in, in contradiction to their unions, um, opposed these sentiments and actually publicly spoke out about them. For instance, they will use their, their social media. You know, I don't believe in this and, or I believe marriage is between a man and a woman. And, you know, my kids should have a mother and a father, this sort of stuff. Now, a lot of these guys, or not a lot of them, but a few of them, um, somewhere in the order of half a dozen, worked for both of our national aircraft um, companies, which are Qantas and Jetstar in, in Australia. They had HR squeeze them to the point where they were being told, remove these posts or lose your job. And that was over the previous current thing. And this is how they exert pressure on their own workforce to comply. Now, this obviously reached the, you know, hit the 11th degree during the COOF and has definitely hit even another level again with the Indigenous question and this voice proposal. But they get, they, get, they sort of accrue power within by drubbing their own um, workforce into compliance. And then for anyone who interacts with that corporation, whether it's, again, by physical media, you know, uh, you know, television, radio, whatever, adverts, they're pulverized by the messaging as well. And it becomes just total saturation. Um, and the corporations do with a lot of power in this sense. So, sorry, I'll, I'll leave you to go on to that point, but I just want to offer that anecdote because it is a multifaceted power structure the corporations possess. Absolutely. I mean, if, I don't know if you remember this, but, you know, there were airlines getting shut down because airline pilots didn't want to take the vax and they were doing uh, the wildcat mm. strikes and the left was yeah. actually decrying labor because the, yeah, you know, the, the labor union itself turned on its own members because the pilots were refusing to go to work and, and because they didn't want to be forced into uh, taking this. So, uh, you know, we, we're, we mm. see that all of these organizations that in theory are supposed to be for the defense of the worker uh, are actually just comply with power immediately, even including the left and, and the unions. Uh, whenever labor, when the actual laborer just doesn't want to do something that's a leftist. Uh, Correct. Dictate. Correct. All right. So our, our article here real quick. Top Australian companies that backed the constitutional recognition of the indigenous people said that they respected voters' rejection of the change, but, uh, but would now take their own steps to try to improve opportunities for the country's first inhabitants so they don't respect this change at all. Uh, Australians overwhelmingly voted down a proposal to create a constitutional protected indigenous parliament advisory body known as The Voice, financial support and publicity from big businesses for the referendum failed against a far less resource, no campaign, which granted a corporate endorsement of the change as elitist and out of touch. So interestingly, massive uh, advantage for the Yes campaign, but hilariously, because it was pushed so hard by corporations, the No side had an effective counter argument making, saying oh, all these corporations and these elitists are pushing it, it can't be good for us. Without a political solution, it's now up to the companies themselves to pursue strategies to address entrenched disadvantages in Australia's 3.8 uh, indigenous percentage indigenous population, corporate leaders, and political researchers said. While the country resolves not to, to amend our constitution, there's never been more awareness of the significant challenges facing our new indigenous population, uh, coming from, uh, uh, from one of the uh, Kmart and Target uh, department store chain owners. Uh, again, talking about how we're going to take this initiative, we're going to pick it up. You see this coming from uh, many of the different companies, their uh, mining companies, uh, their airlines, uh, all talking about how they, they you know, were let down by the population, and they're still going to go ahead and move forward with this. So the idea is basically, like you said, uh, not, just the, not just these private corporations, but the government as well. We're going to put all these corporate initiatives into place. We're going to uh, deploy all this stuff, even if the voters say no. And of course, that's a huge part of it here in the United States. Unfortunately, you know, there's already these really biased, these really, um, you know, deeply entrenched legal uh, requirements. Um, huge uh, cases like uh, Duke Power 
uh, and versus Griggs, which kind of force uh, the, the kind of this bias deeply into our system already, but it wouldn't be anywhere near as bad if the corporations weren't themselves basically pushing a far more radical agenda than what, what is even legally required in an attempt to kind of signal their, uh, you know, their compliance and kind of their, their piousness to everyone around them. Absolutely true. And there's a really interesting dynamic of play here. And it, it, what jogged my memory is that I, um, is that I watched a Lotus Eater, Lotus Eaters episode um, just actually today, um, you know, while I was in my hotel room, and it featured our friend, academic agent, and he sort of spoke about this sort of private-public partnership that's advocated by, you know, our, our very good friend, the Dark Lord himself. <laughs> it's the idea that these mega corporations with huge profits can do things that even governments could only dream of. Mm-hmm. But I guess where the I guess where the real deal with the devil comes in the sort of holy alliance between these entities is that if the government is sympathetic to these views but the corporations push it given that the although i suppose ostensibly the judiciary is meant to be separate from the government right but if the judiciary and the government agree with the general policy or the general attitudes being pushed then who's going to defend the little workers who rebel when the corporation presses this from every possible direction right in the end if the unions don't represent the worker their stuff if the judiciary and the the lawyers legal fraternity don't support the workers rights they have no means of representation if the governments won't enforce their own laws regarding the dynamic between worker and, and corporation then the little person has no means of self-defense in this regard and all those um, all those uh, sort of various domains of power can just collude with each other in an endless cycle. And this is where I think, I mean, I'm of the opinion that I think we should celebrate wins when we get them because I think demoralization is something we should resist at all costs. Mm-hmm. But this is also where boomers <laughs> and uh, not just boomers, but um, people who become overly enthusiastic with success need to have a reality check. It is actually this dire. And this is how, you know, how um, asymmetrical the two sides are. And if we don't see it for what it is, we condemn ourselves to a very dark future. So I think we need to um, be wise, but not too pessimistic. But we need to be really, really keenly aware of where we sit in all this, because these are very... um, you know, essentially almost overwhelmingly powerful entities that collude with each other actively and play their frame games and have their tricks and, and their co-allegiances that make the imposition of these uh, current year proposals just almost infinitely successful. Yeah, it's kind of funny, you know, the way that now that you mentioned that, it, it, it's great that things are far better and simultaneously far worse than I think the average, you know, kind of opponent of these regimes understands. The good news is that these people are really inept and that they're kind of losing yes. their ability to mastermind this stuff. Like you said, there is this degradation. And they clumsy and they greedy. Yes, incredibly greedy. They, they want to control everything, but they don't understand how it works. They're, and they, they overstep constantly. So that's the good news. However, in some ways, that's the bad news, too, because these people are also in charge of everything. So that means all your major institutions are wildly inept and corrupt. And there's not really a place that you can go that like holds power that will fight for you. So it's a terrifying thing because it's like all the power is, is, is consolidated into hands of these institutions that are run by like the most inept, corrupt and uh, foolish people that are just going to blow things up. So the good news is this can't go on forever because it's too, it's too deep into the system and the people doing it are too greedy. They're too stupid. They, they will destroy themselves. The bad news is like your civilization is in some ways glued together. You know, we make this joke all the time, you know, uh, academic agent, you know, I think would be more comforted if we just had competent malevolent overlords. Like it's okay if they're evil, just let them be competently evil, you know, (laughs) as, but, but that's not the case, right? Like can Tony Blair just get the the crime rate of London down, please. Like that would be nice. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. When you were for people who don't know when that inside joke, when you're referring to, the dark lord you're talking about tony blair but yeah it's it's this it's right, this yeah, yeah. it's this hope that like even if they're as long you know it's the joker from from uh, the dark knight you know as long as there's a plan you know everybody's fine as long as there's a plan 
And so as long as they're, if, even if it was evil, if it was terrible, people would go along with it just because it's a competent plan. That, that's what matters. But that's not where we're at. We're at the incompetent, no plan stage of mm. civilization. And while that yeah. the good news is that means that these people will lose, it's, it's scarier because like that means there's just nobody at the wheel in a lot of ways. Exactly. I think that I think that veneer or that phase of that um, competent malevolence was probably embodied by people such as uh, such as Bill Clinton in the mm-hmm. States. Mm-hmm. I think by Blair in Britain, and I think to some degree um, in Australia by you know the the Labor governments that we had of the late eighties and uh, late eighties and early nineties, and to some degree really just carried over with our sort of our Tory government under John Howard that continued in the into the 2000s is that and I think also people like us um you know I mean a broad sphere generally have really come to understand the power of the unit party in that did things really change when Bush got elected after Clinton no not really and then sort of Obama more or less carried the same policies thereafter and even here uh, um sorry not when I say here I mean sorry like in 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 Britain here um yeah, just because we're talking about Blair uh, we go from Blair to Cameron to this, you know, and then there's like four Tory PMs later. Has anything fundamentally changed? No, the same policies get rolled over. So I think um, I think we're starting to actually realise that it, it, the, the uni party is as much an, an opponent as trying to interpret it as a left-right dichotomy. It's actually just a, a, a malaise of the political structure writ large the, and the socio-political structure writ large. Yep. And so I think I think the takeaway for a lot of people with this is to understand that while we're going to still see these these kind of manifestations, these revolts of the average voter and the average person against the elites, we'll also continue to see this attempt at control, this attempt at shutting down, you know, uh, again, privatizing the popular sovereignty, uh, you know, pushing it back into the machine and, and trying to make the same change a different way. But over time, that dynamic is eventually going to kind of break things down. It's going to it's going to bring things to a head, and that's something that you just need to be prepared for. I think I think like I've said, you know, I, I don't know the Australian situation domestically, but in the United States, I think the key thing is really people understanding that you know regionalism that that you know we we have the advantage of federalism. We have the advantage of having a good amount of power still vested in many of the apparatuses of the states and localities. And there are things that you can do to kind of prepare for this, uh, in, you know, this competency crisis that's going to be incoming, uh, kind of kind of the, the way your feckless elites are just going to be unable to uh, kind of actually uh, effectuate any real change. Like there, there are things that you can do that are still meaningful, uh, but you just should not expect like wide sweeping populist change to lock in just because you have some kind of referendum vote or even get a president elected because the forces are raided against them while, while deeply incompetent are vast. And so that that's something that's going to have to punch itself out. I think before you see big changes come. Correct. Correct. Um, I'm conscientious of the fact that we're sort of coming up to an hour. Mm -hmm. So I just want to quickly touch on two points because our our very dear lady Charlotte is in the chat as always. And, uh, and it's just a point that you touched on uh, a a, a little while back now, but the idea that it will be the States that carry the can for this, that irrespective of the, of the quite, um, you know, emphatic, no vote and particularly in some of the states such as queensland and such as uh, new south wales and south australia and western australia where the no vote was quite resounding um you know the 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 states are going to wrangle this through their own in their own way and rather than having to either um you know bring in or dispense of a single federal domestic system there will instead be this entanglement of you know a dozen state-based systems (laughs) and then who has um you know, jurisdiction over who and, you know, to what end are these changes of recognition then federally recognised and is it on a state-to-state basis? Like, this creates this, you know, intentional sort of political judicial quagmire, which only ever advantages power, really, if you get if you get what I mean by that. And And the second point is, I think I mentioned to you about those two advocates of the no vote uh, and there were two aboriginal people that was uh mm. jacinta price and uh warren mundine and this 
there's sort of two point very brief sub points I want to touch on that. And the one is there, there always is this kind of idea that people of, shall I say, of European descent are now extremely fearful of being able to advocate their own interests as someone of European descent, that it's almost as if they have to bequeath that to someone who is an intersectional member because they're afraid of being called a racist for having their opinion, if you get what I mean. Like, yeah. it would be refreshing if someone of a European background could actually say, I, as a European person, someone of descent of, say, this Greco-Roman tradition, this Anglo-Celtic tradition, this Britannic or Germanic tradition that is steeped in centuries and in some regards even millennia of, of an intellectual, philosophical, you know, train of thinking and belief can say that in a full-throated fashion without batting an eyelid, they can't do it. And that in itself is um, is very damning in itself, right, and very telling of the lack of rigour, certainly amongst not so much the mainstream rights thought leaders because they're sort of not our people anyway, but the people who support them, if you get what I mean. Mm -hmm. And secondly, as a minor point from that, a lot of people in that sphere make the mistake of always and i mean i'm going to say this is the perpetual traditionalist and and uh, we will touch on that dictator stream at some point i, I promise you or we will get there i just have to read some books but um this idea that the west and this assumption of democracy or this assumption of liberalism are one and the same i mean are the west responsible for creating an interpretation of democracy yes is it responsible for creating liberalism yes but are they the same thing? No. The occident Western civilization has a very extensive history of imperium, has a very ex extensive uh, um, history of monarchy, of rules of kings and emperors, of systems that are very alien to what we are familiar with today. In fact, what we experience today is a very, very tiny aberration in the vast expanse of our civilization, which goes back the better part of two and a half, three thousand years. And when a politician or a political advocate says, oh, in our Western liberal democracy or our Western civilization based on liberal values, that is a snake oil salesman. It's either a person lying to you willfully or a person who's too stupid to not know better. And I, I would pass that message on to people who have not necessarily looked into dissonant spheres. Because that is honestly the way we have to view our inheritance, because it isn't something that arrived on our doorstep five minutes ago. It has a very, very long history. And as many of its facets have proven itself resilient, but they've just been bastardized by a hostile elite. And we should be cognizant of that fact. All right, Furious, let's go ahead and look. I think we got one question over here real quick. Uh, Adam E for $5. I think the globalist play is to marginalize national sovereignty by casting intellectual by casting intellectually deficient leaders, Biden, Fetterman here, Aborigines there. I mean, so there's there's certainly, I think there's a, a really simple, I think there's a really simple explanation for some of these, which is that these incompetent leaders, guys like Biden and Fetterman, who are obviously just kind of blank slates in many ways, uh, they, you know, literally mentally diminished, they are easy to manipulate. They're easy to control. If you're an oligarchy, you want someone who's basically formless, who you can shape entirely mm -hmm. to your will. And you can look at that from Biden. He takes positions that are entirely different. He has none of the positions, or not none of the positions, but many of his positions are radically different from ones he held not that long ago, just because like that's the current zeitgeist and somebody puts in his prompter. And I mean, he doesn't even know where he is. So he just spits it back out. And obviously, you know, th this is true of many different people. Incompetent leaders can be very valuable because they're easy to manipulate. However, this is obviously like a losing strategy long term because like people can feel how terrible Biden is. Like, like even if you're a leftist, you're looking at Biden and you're like, OK, this guy doesn't inspire me to anything. He's not really leading me to anything. He's just, you know, he, he, even I think most leftists understand that in some way he's a puppet of, of kind of the shadow interests of their party. Maybe they agree with those shadow interests, but it's not like something that really, you know, inspires confidence when you start talking about going to war with Russia or something. And so, yeah. you know, the, there there is a limitation to this strategy. Now, yeah. I, I, you could say maybe this is a larger globalist play to to make each you know nation weaker. 
but I think this one's actually a, a, a much easier thing to understand. We've just transitioned to oligarchies, distributed oligarchies that want weak leaders so they can just kind of impose their will on them. Absolutely. And the other thing is like a, a placeholder cannot function as a fulcrum. You know, mm -hmm. a placeholder is exactly that. It's a paper dragon. Uh, and the other thing is the higher up the chain that person is, I think this is where, for example, you can draw a distinction between Fetterman and Biden is that, I mean, Fetterman's just sort of like a functionary in a place whereby he can have papers put in front of him. He signs them off. Biden does that as well. But we have to understand the implications of Biden being president is that an entire narrative, an entire, um, shall I say, like a basket of policies, an entire agenda can be made to disappear with him because in the end, with a leader goes their views with a leader goes their decisions and it's a very convenient sort of parachute for the democrat party and i mean I hate to use this analogy but you know the swamp shall i say you know the washington quagmire that if and when a time comes to gently nudge you know sleepy uncle joe off the stage you know kuf goes with him ukraine goes with him you know animosity towards russia goes with him uh, you know, a lot of this other stuff, BLM goes with him. A lot of this stuff vanishes with him, and that consigns current year into yesteryear. And again, people who have short memories will forget that, and then will bring their attention to the new current thing, and on the cycle goes. No, that's that's a great point, and this is why I hit this so often with conservatives who are just like the Bidens. It's the Bidens. It's Biden. Joe Biden's corrupt. Joe Biden's, uh, you know, uh, has all these terrible Biden uh, policies. It's like, guys, Joe Biden is not in charge, and it's very clear that he's not the one dictating policy. You should be attacking whoever is, and if you don't know who it is, you should be asking mm -hmm. that question because somewhere Correct. behind him there are the people who are actually wielding power. And like you said, once they jettison Joe. They can just attach all the most toxic parts of their failed policies to him. And then all you've done is bind all these ideas to Joe Biden. He's easily jettisoned. And the people who are really responsible, the people who are really wielding power, who are really making decisions, they get to say, oh, no, that was all, that was all this guy. He's gone. New new rulers, new new administration. And we don't have to deal with it clean. Yep. And they're squeaky clean. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Nope. An excellent point. All right, guys. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. I want to thank everybody for coming by. Of course, great to have Furious be able to tag in here at the last minute. Really appreciate you coming on, man. No, no, all, all good. Uh, despite my uh, my jet-lagged state and uh, <laughs> evidently having been thrown in the wrong room in my hotel, <laughs> it was a pleasure as always. Um, and, of course, uh, you know, uh, these discussions are important, I, I think, uh, you know, every so often. I mean, in the end, I, I completely appreciate that obviously you're based in America and most of your audience is American too, although we have Lady Shot with us today, which is fantastic. But, um, you know, it, it is important that, you know, Australians pay attention to what happens in America. To some degree, it's important that, you know, you guys pay attention to what happens us here. And if we pay attention to what happens in Britain or continents of Europe, because they're all, there's, there's events and things which take place in a certain way that, you know, if we observe each other, we might actually learn lessons that apply to our own situation a little bit better. And I think it'd be to our detriment if we didn't do that. So, um, you know, as it always is with our British and American compatriots, I think it's um, fantastic. We can all talk amongst each other and, you know, discuss these more, um, you know, uh, obscure events and obscure topics and uh, and get to the number of it. So thank you for the opportunity, Or And I, I always love coming on your channel. It's a, it's a great honor. And it's a, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. So thank you very much, sir. Absolutely, man. Great having you. All right, guys, if you enjoyed this show, of course, please go ahead and subscribe if you haven't subscribed to the channel yet. And if you'd like to get these broadcasts as podcasts so you can listen to them while you're mowing the lawn or working out like I know you are, then you can go ahead and subscribe to your McIntyre show on your favorite podcast platform. When you do that, please make sure that you go ahead and give it a review or a rating that really helps with the algorithm. Thank you, everybody, for stopping by. And as always, I'll talk to you 